0: specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: How does someone become a multi-New York Times bestselling author? First, ask yourself this question. What do you do when no one is watching? Dan Pink, a four-time New York Times bestselling author, shares his story on becoming a prolific researcher and writer. How his side hustle of writing and a conversation with his wife turned into the journey of a lifetime. Dan's story leads us into an inspiring conversation about the advice we give to our kids and ourselves. When we give our kids advice or try to find our own way, Asking what is your passion is not the right question we should be considering. Instead, a better question to ask is, what do you like to do? Or more important, what are you good at? Our conversation weaves together multiple topics that we all deal with in life, such as what motivates us, how to change, how our work defines our identities, and much more. Be sure to check out the show note link below, where we list several of the excellent resources that Dan brings up throughout our conversation. Please enjoy my conversation with Dan Pink. Dan, for most of our audience, you know I've been a longtime follower of yours, like we were talking about uh, before we hit the record button for over five years now. And to me, having you on is, is a really big deal because you're such a prolific writer and has really helped um, my life as a person and and my business, Tama Capital, and so I'm excited to have well, you on to talk about um, your background, the work that you do. So I think for our audience, if we just start by the beginning, like walk us through your background, like how did you become this prolific, four time New York selling, New York Times selling best
1: author. Um, well, I mean, like like most things in life, I came about it in a pretty half-assed way. Uh, I didn't um, set out to be a writer. Um, um, I, to make a, a a tortured and not very interesting story less tortured and slightly more interesting. Uh, I grew up in Central Ohio, so kind of just south, you know, a little bit th- four, four hours to the south of where you are right now, uh, in the um, uh, in the shadow of the Ohio State University. Okay, And I, uh, you know, fairly middle-class upbringing. Uh, I went to college, Uh, you know, I was always pretty good at school, went to college. Uh, I ended up going to law school because I was interested in politics and because I was a risk-averse son of the middle class and uh, didn't really love it that much, decided I didn't want to practice law, ended up working in politics, became a political speechwriter, then decided that I didn't want to work in politics because that was was soul-hallowing, and not how I wanted to lead my life. And then around the, and, and and here here I think there's a point, it might be something useful to your audience, it might be useful to their kids, is, is this. Um, so while I was working at some of these jobs in politics throughout, really from the time I was in high school, uh, even in college, I was always quote unquote, writing on the side. So I would be writing articles or essays or things like that. Um, but not as like, it's like some people play golf, you know, yeah. uh, this is sort of my golf in a way. And, uh, and I was doing it and I did it some more and I did it some more and I did it some more. And I had all these clips of stuff that I'd published, uh, but I didn't really consider, like I wasn't like, oh, I want to be a writer when I grew up. It was just sort of something that I did. And I was working in these jobs in politics. And at that time, I was writing articles. These are very demanding jobs. And on the quote unquote side, I was writing articles for magazines and newspapers, not anything long or super substantial. But um, I, but because of ethics rules, I wasn't even allowed to get paid for them. And oh, yet I was still doing it, And I was still doing it. And finally, at some point, my wife, my wife, um, you know, we're in this tiny little apartment in the Adams Morgan neighborhood of Washington, D.C., uh, it's it's midnight and I have this very demanding job, but I'm at the computer writing some stupid op-ed or something like that about a topic unrelated to anything in my daily daily life. And she finally said, I, you know, sort of helped me convince me that, hey, I think that you're a writer. I think that that's what like that. I think that's what you do. And and the point of all of this, and if and if I can extract a life lesson from it, is that. A lot of times when we give our kids advice or when we think about ourselves and we're trying to figure out our path, we ask ourselves, like, what's your passion? And we, or we ask our kids that, you know, and we want to be these enlightened parents who encourage their kids to follow their passions and like, what's your passion? And I freaking hate that question. I do uh, too. Because Yeah. I mean, let's talk more about that. I'll tell you why I hate it. And you tell me why you hate it. I hate it. Well, I hate it for multiple reasons, but let me just give you one. The main reason I hate it is that it's a really, I find it a really hard and daunting question. I find it a really hard question to answer. And I think it's the wrong question. If you had asked me at that moment when I decided to leave my traditional work and go out on my own to try to become a writer, if you had said to me, "Is what's your passion? I would say, I don't know. If you said to me today, 20 years later, you know, you know, having written, you know, just finished writing my seventh book. If you said, "Oh, is writing your passion?" I would say, "No, it writing's really hard." Um, it just that you know, and so when you, so the real question, I think, the better question at least, is not what's your passion, but what do you do? When no one's watching, what do you do? Because it's a full expression of who you are. What do you do? Because you almost at some level can't help yourself from doing that. And to me, that's a better. And, and, and what it turned out for me is that what I did is that I wrote. And so that was the discovery that I made. I at like at age 30, even a little older than that. Um, and, but for me, what's your passion has never been a useful question. Now you tell me, Paul, why do you dislike that question?
2: So here's my story around that is that I followed my passion after I graduated from undergrad in 1998 and worked at the ocean course at Kiowa Island in outside of Charleston, South Carolina, where they just had the PGA championship this yeah. year. And so my passion was golf. I lived at the course seven days a week. I worked at the course, but my problem was, I wasn't very good. Like I was, (laughs) I was, I was a three, four handicap, but you know, you gotta be, you gotta be scratched to be a player. Like you just, you just gotta be good. And I'm like, well, I'm going to give it a shot. Maybe I can do something in like golf course management or something like that. And it just didn't work out. And like what you were saying, what I was doing on the side in my early twenties was learning about companies, reading You know, earnings reports exactly, and 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 crunching numbers and building you know Excel spreadsheets, and little did I know then that it was going to turn out to be my full time, you know, my life's work, which has now turned into Tama, and so I'm with you is that I think that follow your passion gets too much credit to to Steve Jobs and that famous Stanford speech, commencement speech he made, and it's really asking what are you good at, like because. And, and you go back, I know you've had Katie Milkman on, on the pink cast before, and you know, I just got through her book, but if, if you find what you're good at, that's going to lead to a, a much more happier or content life than following your passion.
1: Um, okay. So let me see you and raise you on this point. So I think, yes, and knowing what you're good at is so central. I just want to underscore that it's so central because the way I think about this is that, and, and, you know, this is going to, this is a podcast so people can't, you're going I'm going to have to describe my hand gestures here. All right. So if you think about the universe of things that there are to be good at, it's wide. Okay. My hands are far apart audience. Now, <laughs> The universe of things to be good at is vast. The universe, the, the, the set of things that people themselves are actually good at is tiny. tiny. It's a tiny little thing within that giant universe. And finding out what you're good at is really important because, and what's equally important is finding out what you're not good at. Um, and now, so I think that finding out what you're good at is important It's necessary. I don't think it's sufficient because there are a couple of other things, both. uh, And I'll give you advice from from from, from other people. Number one, um, you have to be you have to do something that there is a market for. So you could be good at I could be like the greatest. um, um, uh, Sculptor of ducks from stone fruit, you know, uh, you know, and if there's not a market for that, it's a nice hobby, whatever. But it's probably not what I should do to try to make a living. Um, right. um, but the other thing is, so, so you have to have that, you have to have that pragmatic cast of it as well. That is, I don't think you lead always, you, I, 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 my life has been about not leading with the, is this viable? Is this a good business? Is this an economically wise decision? But I don't think you can neglect that question. I don't think you lead with it, but I don't think you neglect it. So I just want that reality check. The second thing is, and this is where my friend Tom Rath, the founder of, or who who wrote Finders, among with a gazillion other books that have sold 18 trillion copies. um, He says, his view on this is that instead of asking, what's your passion, you should ask, and it's a really powerful question, where can I make my biggest contribution? Where can I make my biggest contribution? And and, and I find that really helpful too. So if you think about, if you triangulate among these different questions, what are you good at? What do you do? What are you good at? Where can you make your contribution? Over time, I think you begin to see your path. And I really want to underscore the over time. This is not the kind of thing where the picture immediately flashes into your head for most people. I think it's true. for That happens for some people. But for most people, it doesn't immediately snap into their head. The picture, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The picture resolves over time.
2: Yeah. No, I, I agree with you because a lot of the, the, the research that I read along the same lines of the research that you've done for, for some of your books all say the same thing. And I think in working with a lot of families that have Kids that are in high school or going to and, and go, going into college right now, I think that's one of the biggest challenges is helping or at least having to have that conversation to help guide their kids on what it is that they want to do. Like it, there's it's more trial and error than it is anything else. They need that time to to learn and grow and develop. And I think there's so much pressure on kids to try to figure out, you know, what I want, what do I want to do at age 17 or 18? Like, forget about it.
1: I mean, begin the, the, begin the inquiry then, but don't think that you're going to know because again, one of the mistakes that we make psychologically is that we think that the, the me today is going to be exactly the same as the me Twenty years from now, or to put a make it, this point even clearer, and and Daniel Gilbert at, at at Harvard has done as a social psychologist done some interesting research on this front, is when we look at this, we say, um, um, I don't know. Well, I'll do this with you, Paul. Like how how well you know you you you, you I can't fake you out. So I'll do it with I'll do it with a, <laughs> a, a, a a if I say to somebody who is say forty five, okay. 45. That's how old I am. <laughs> okay. Oh, I was, okay. So I thought I was older than you. So, okay. So if I say to somebody, we'll, we'll say imaginary Paul, all right. Or, or you know, uh, imaginary Paul, eh, age 45. And I say to imaginary Paul age 45, Hey, have you changed at all since you were 25? And well, what would your answer be to that? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Everybody, everybody, <laughs> like, of course, if you're like alive and sentient and awake, of course, and so, but then when you ask people, do you, th- and, and people often say, yeah, I know I've changed quite a bit. Da, 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 da. And then they say, well, how do you, how different do you think you're going to be 20 years from now when you're 65? And people almost invariably say, oh, pretty much the same. Same, I'm gonna be pretty yeah. much the same as I am now. And it's wrong because right. we don't have, we're not good predictors of who we're going to become. So, so, so certainly to do something like that kind of exercise at age 17 <laughs> is, is foolish, but it's even worse than that. And let me tell you why. Because of, you know, because of longevity and the nature of work. So, you know, it used to be that, that, you know, if you were 17, you know, you could go and get a job at age 18 and maybe retire 40 years later at age 58. And now like I fully, like I fully expect to be working until, I mean, assuming I alive well into my eighties. Right. You know? And so And so if you just look at that, and and so what what we have is we have a world that's built for, for, or even a mindset that's built for sort of work lives that are only a certain length, when in fact, most of us are gonna have work lengths that are two, three, four times that. And so you can't even think about that. So that 17 year old, what she's gonna be interested in doing now, 20 years from now could be different. 10 years after that, there are going to be industries that exist and jobs that exist that she couldn't even fathom when she was 17. So how are you going to figure that out? So
2: Yeah, I, I think to your point, and I cannot remember where I read this at, but it, it's like you got to think of your your career in stages. And, and a lot of people, whether they realize it or not, could have three, four, maybe even five different stages that exactly. they go through. And the interesting thing that you were saying about um, – about forecasting and how horrible we are when I'm sitting down and putting together a wealth management plan for my families. The one thing I tell them right off the bat, it's either in six months and 12 months, 18 months, whatever it may be, this thing's going to be wrong. Why? Because life happens, life changes, You you know, people come and go in your lives that you can't imagine. You have a career change, you know, something else happens. And you you can't predict all this so we're just we're just trying to do the best with the guesses that we have today to figure out maybe what it what it may look like financially for you down the line
1: uh, right right and and uh, yeah so so again i mean just to you know uh I, can i pick up on one other thing you said sure. that was really important you said that that you said that you know what that the, the, the way you figure this out is through trial and error and what i have found and this is a problem of parents more than the kids. What I have found is that many parents are t- totally fine on trial. They're not into error. And so they try to protect their kids from error. They try to shield them from mistakes. They try to insulate them from that. And to me, you, you, you can't like, like trial and we, we almost need like, like trial and error. we need to emphasize the and in yeah. trial and error because we, we, uh, a lot of us, a lot of parents, especially are allergic to error. And that's the only way to actually have a reasonable trial.
2: I, I know that's, I'm actually glad that you brought that up because it's a, that's a, some kind, times can be a really hot topic between my wife, Teresa and I, where, you know, amongst our triplets plus one, I think sometimes we, and, and I'm as guilty as this, as anyone, probably more so I ex- I think I expect too much out of my kids and don't realize these kids are only 10 years old. You know, they're still learning. They're curious. They, they're, you know, it's, it's okay, you know, for them not to, um, I guess be where I want them to be yet. It's it. Well, where do you want them to be? <laughs> I, I want them to listen to me a little bit more. <laughs>
1: okay. So, I mean, that could be that it's, maybe the problem is yours, not theirs. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe you're not a very good communicator. Exactly. Maybe maybe you're not, maybe you're not, uh, maybe you're not modeling the behavior that you seek in them.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's actually, now you sound like my therapist, Dan. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So to kind of pivot from there, one of the the books I wanted to, there's actually two books I wanted to just touch on. Um, One, the first one is drive. And this is one thing that I struggle with, with the families I work with in particular, um, because of of people's careers. And I know a lot of people that are really struggling in their career, because they just hate their job, they hate Mm the career, they hate what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But they have a really hard time taking that first step to do something else. Yeah. To like you were talking about and what I did, like basically starting, like you were writing, didn't realize you were a writer. I was doing finance work and didn't realize I was becoming a wealth advisor. You know, t- today, you know, people they'll talk about how miserable they are, but they're, but they are so afraid to take that first step. And the research that you've done with, I guess, all your books, but what would, what would you be able to? talk to somebody and, and, and try to encourage them to take that first step.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, there, there is, I mean, I I don't know if if the stuff that I've written is that, that helpful, but there's some good stuff on this. And I, and I think I can offer a little bit of guidance. So, so the one, so the, the first thing is like that apprehension is perfectly natural. It makes perfect sense to me. I had it. There's a reason I didn't become a writer Full, like a full-time writer until I was in my 30s because that was pretty freaking scary, you know? And, so, and so, the, so apprehension about that kind of change is if you didn't have apprehension, I'd be worried about you. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and here there's some interesting research. Um, it, there's a, uh, a scholar at, um, where is she now? Uh, she, she's a, a, at a European business school called NCAD right now. Her name is, uh, she's, she's American. Uh, Her name is, uh, uh, er, 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 um, her name is um, Herminia Ibarra. And, uh, and she's done some work on this. It came out, uh, done in a book, a little old now, 15 years old now, but still totally spot on, um, which is that when we, that, that when, when we change careers, it isn't a, our model that we have in our heads of how to do it is off. We say, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to pick the new career. I'm going to pick the new path. I'm going to strategize over that. I'm going to make basically a strategic plan for a career switching. And then I'm going to execute against that strategic plan. And she says, that's not how it works. The reason that's not how it works is that when we make those kinds of changes, our identity is at stake. It's not simply changing a career. It's changing an identity, she says. And that is not something human beings do with a snap. And so what instead of this kind of strategic plan followed by execution is something that is more incremental, more turbulent, more experiment, more trial Trial and and error. Um, where you're just trying stuff. And I think that that is the most important thing. So if you want, so if you're miserable in your job and you want to change careers, first of all, listen to that sentiment in yourself, but don't think that the way to do it is to say, okay, I'm I'm tired of being a cowboy. Now I want to be an astronaut. Let me just go be an astronaut right now. That's not how it works. You're changing identity. So Small experimental things. Um, t- try doing some of the something you're interested in on the side and see what it's like. Try it almost like I did with writing as kind of like almost like a hobby. Um, start talking to people who are doing that kind of thing uh, because this is a slow, incremental, identity saturated process. And just go with that and know that there's going to be a lot of ambiguity, a lot of uncertainty. And do some of that discovery first, but don't think that you're gonna the ants. It's not black and white. It's these gradual, almost imperceptible shades of gray that take place and change over time. Um, and and and, and uh, Ibarra's research has shown that when people think of it, the people who do this successfully, Excuse me. Um, excuse me. Ibarra has shown that the people who do this successfully, that's how they do it
2: that's, that's really good point. And I'll make sure we link to that in the show notes.
1: Yeah. The other, I I think the book for your producers, it's, I I think the book is called, I could look it up. Yeah. Um, uh, The last name is, is uh, I-B-A-R-R-A. First name is Erminia, which is uh, like Herman with an I-A. Okay. And then, um, and I think the book is called Working Identity.
2: Okay. Got it. The other place I want to take you back to way back and full disclosure, I have not read this book yet of yours. Um, but your very first book about the future, the free agent, free agent nation, the future yeah. of working for yourself. Yeah. You wrote that back, what, 20 years ago? Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Looking back at that now, and, and now where we're at today with with the gig economy, if you will, I would be interested to get your thoughts on, on how you, when you wrote that book and how it's, and, and how things actually have developed over the last 20 years with, you know, people, you know, being free agents and working on their own more. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it was slightly ahead of the voters on that one, as they say in <laughs> politics. Um, um, but, but not too much. I think what, what's, what's interesting is that if you look at not only the outcome of that, but you look at the, you know, what I tried to explain were the forces that were creating that they've only intensified. So one of the forces back then in today is, you know the end of of, of um, you know uh, this kind of this loyalty for security bargain from companies um, at the time I wrote that that was a uh, you know eroding pretty quickly and now I don't think there's anybody under 40 who thinks that a large organization is going to take care of them right. um, if they do they're, they're they're pretty foolish it's a very different kind of transaction um, it used to be the bargain was loyalty for security that is that is i the individual gave the company loyalty and in turn they gave me security now the bargain is it's a very different bargain it's talent for opportunity i'll give you i'll lend you my talent for now if you give me opportunity of some kind whether it's cool projects making money working with great people doing something that matters blah 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 but that's a very different kind of bargain and so and so so the force the end of corporate loyalty and security that's gone. It, 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 when I when I wrote about that, it was disappearing. I think it's fully gone now. Another factor was this idea going back to identity that work for many people, not all people, was a source of meaning. Or as Studs Terkel famously said in 1974 in his great book Working, is that um, is that is that work is a, a search for, for for daily meaning as much as daily bread and. And so this idea that work is part of our identities, that we want to do something that matters, that we want to do something that's a full expression of ourselves, that was a somewhat novel concept then. It's more intensified now. And then the other thing that's so remarkable is that the argument that I made there, and forgive me for going on on this, but I I think it's responsive to your question. The, The argument that I made in that book was also that technology was enabling this. And the amazing thing about that is that when I wrote that book, there were not smartphones. There was not point. Zoom. There was not Zoom. There was not Wi-Fi. There actually was not widespread broadband, and so that has become an intensifier. So, uh, so, so I really do think that the the nature of the 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 compact of work, the structure of work, the Psychology of work, even the very kind of functional grammar of work, uh, was changing. I think it's more fully realized, more fully realized now. I think that you write that book now, and people say, uh,
2: "No duh." <laughs> and see, to me, and that's why I'm glad I went in order that I did about you know the the career question first, and then this, because I think that they're tied together. I think that a lot of people at least the people that families that I interact with um on a regular basis many of them i don't think like their careers or their job situations because they know at the end of the day there is no loyalty there so i'm just exchanging my time for a paycheck and you know to your point and and some of the work that you cited people don't want that relationship anymore they want to find Meaning in it, and and for a lot of us, I know going back to my twenty-five year corporate career before I, I founded Tama, you know, you asked Teresa like my my whole life, my identity was wrapped up in my career and and either how successful or unsuccessful unsuc- I was with that, right or wrong, that was just how I you know was wired, and I guess to some degree it's probably the same with you know how I'm connected with Tama and how it represents not only myself, but my entire family and all the families I work with. But there's so much meaning behind it. And like you said, like, well, I can continue writing till I'm 80. I'm the same way. As long as I have my mental capacity, you know, I, I see myself doing this, you know, for as long as I can. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about from a technical perspective, when it comes to, Writing and the success that you've had is how do you how do you land on one of your ideas and then turn it into something so much bigger to to like a book drive or win or to sell as the human and by the way full disclosure that's probably been my favorite of all your books Thanks. by the way okay, cool
1: um, so well it's a it's a you know it's a, like all these things like you know like a lot of these processes and things when you unpack them, they're, they're not, they're not dramatic. You know, it's like the career change thing. It's like, it's often, you know, what we want is we want something, you know, for career change, we we want this cinematic moment when you, you know, you, you're hauled into your boss's office at your ad agency. And, and she says, you can't, uh, you're fired. And you say, you can't fire me. And she says, why? And you say, Cause I quit and you march out the door and the next day you're a successful opera singer. It's like, it doesn't, it's not, it's not dramatic in that way. It's, it's incremental. It's cumbersome. It's, it, it zigs and zags and moves forward and back. It's, it's chaotic. Um, and I think that's the same thing with, with this. What I will do is I will start, I will start big. I, I'm a, I'm a chronic um, filer and collector. So I have, um, I don't, I me mean, just. I can pull it up here for a second here. Let me look in this computer. Like I have, I don't know how many folders on Dropbox, probably about 200 folders on Dropbox where I put stuff in. Um, I, I, a big user of paper files. Uh, and so I collect stuff, shards of things. Uh, and then I have a system for collecting them. And then I will go back and review them periodically. So I might have an, I, I might hear a phrase and say, Hey, that's an interesting phrase. That could be a book title. Or I might hear, I might read an article and say, "Wow, that's really interesting. I'd like to know more about this," and put that somewhere. And so you got all these things swirling around, and I will go and revisit these folders and lists periodically. You know, maybe every six months or so. And what I found is that if you take, again, it's very thematically similar to what many of the things we've been talking about. If I take these large. Numbers of ideas, and sh- I don't even want to call them ideas in many cases. They're shards, you know. Um, if I take all these things and look at them again, many of them are not interesting anymore. Many of them are stupid. Many of the ideas that I have are like dumb as hell. Like, why would anybody <laughs> want to do that now that I have a little bit of distance from them? But what you also will find sometimes is that if you, if you call those lists, if you, if you edit them, if you keep the good stuff and get rid of the bad stuff, Over time, certain things end up like, you know, staying pretty high up, you know, end up uh, surviving. And and that often gives you a good idea. That often gives you a sense of what it works. And then for me, then then it's a matter of doing this kind of like stress testing of of an idea, which is maybe you write an article about it. Maybe you start talking about it more with um, your friends and and colleagues. Um, You know, I have for every single book that I've written, I've written a, a fairly lengthy book proposal. Uh, beforehand Um, because I know that if that a book proposal is for me, a test of whether I can bear working on this idea for several years, not to mention the rest of my life. And so if I, so I, so there've been, there've been times where I've written a book proposal and I say, okay, you know what? This is not a bad idea, but there's no way on God's green earth. I want to spend a couple of years on this. Or there've been other times where I say, wow, this actually doesn't hold together. I'm glad I discovered that in writing the proposal rather than making a deal for this book and having to go to my publisher and say, Oh, I'm sorry. I can't make it work. Uh, so it's all about this. It's just about, you know, moving. I mean, my wife allow, I, I, my, my wife, my wife allows me one sports metaphor a day and, and, <laughs> And you get to use it with me. (laughs) I'm going to have to burn it on you, Paul, which is that I think there's something to be said for, and this I think originally comes, I'm not even a big football fan. I think this originally comes from drew Brees, maybe, or somebody, but I just think it's about moving the chains, you know, like just making forward progress, um, you know, pushing it along and showing up, you know, and like showing up again and showing up again and, maybe because i grew up in the the days of woody hayes and the and, yeah, and the yeah. Ohio state football team where he had this philosophy of three yards in a cloud of dust That's if you remember good. that yep sure do um so you know where this is back in the i mean like people my son's age can't even fathom college football back in the day where it was like wishbone offense no, no yeah and also like nobody ever passed right um and um, so, but I, I sort of have a three yards in a cloud of dust approach to most things. I think uh, including, including, the, including taking an idea from a large collection of shards and moving it slowly to the and testing and experimenting with, you know, it's sort of a mix between being a scientist and being a 1970s college football coach. Three yards in a cloud of dust and a lot of experimentation. I think
2: people, most people would be shocked at really how long it takes the great authors like yourself, how long it takes to actually write a book. Like I was, I was on a call with James Clear um, a few weeks ago who wrote Atomic Habits. I think James, I think James said he worked on that for like I, I should remember this. It was like either five or six or seven years. It yeah, was a yeah. long time. Yeah, a yeah long because, time. It was
1: because, he's, because he's incubating it. He's figuring it out. He's, you know, all that. Yeah.
2: So the last thing I want to touch on, you know, you're a prolific author. You know, like I mentioned, four-time New York Times best selling author. But one of your other claims to fame is your pink cast. I love these things. And I share these with families and friends all the time. Walk us through how you came up with the the (laughs) idea of the pink cast. And, and so that's question number one. And I want to follow that up because you've, you've reiterated that you've made changes and tweaks to that over the years too. And every time you do, they've been incredibly awesome. And so I'll let you, I'll let you have the floor for those two. So, well,
1: it connects, I think, Paul, to some of the other stuff we've been talking about. So, um, so for me, so I'm a writer as I, as we've talked about ad nauseum here. And so, and, and, and who you are, who your identity is often shapes your first move or your muscle memory or your instincts. And so my instincts on stuff, ideas, concepts, stories, whatever is, has always been written. And I realized that the world was much more complex than that, that there were other ways to convey ideas, other ways to tell stories, um, incredible other ways to do that, that I wasn't really using enough. And so I wanted to experiment with a different approach and and so, this, it, so it began as a kind of experiment where I said, I wonder if I can explain complicated concepts and offer people smart, evidence-based advice, but in really, really short amount of time. I mean, much shorter than I'm taking to answer your questions. Two you minutes know, to be exact. <laughs> well, sometimes even shorter. Like I yeah. aspire to go even shorter. I, don't, I started out saying, oh, we've got to do it in a certain amount of time. And then I realized that was too constraining. But, you know, I try to do it in like 90 or 120 seconds uh, and, um, and, and do it via video because I also felt like if you look at the usage patterns on, online that, you know, as much as I want everyone to be reading all the time, people aren't reading, they're watching videos. And so I could, I could howl into the wind about that or I could try to do it myself. And so I just started experimenting with these short videos. And right now we've made, I don't know, maybe I think a total of maybe 75 of them um, over the last few years. Uh, Again, trying different techniques, trying different ways of um, trying different ways of doing it and seeing what people responded to, what people didn't respond to. Um, And so it's been
2: it's been kind of interesting. So I'm going to I'm going to wrap up with my my closing question that I ask all of my guests. Yeah. And it's and I know you have a, a family and you have kids. So the question is, what is the best thing about being a parent?
1: The best, well, this is one thing. The best thing about being a parent? Sure.
2: Any way you want to interpret it.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh, The best thing about being a parent is that there is no other way to understand unconditional love. And unconditional love is such a powerful concept. And I don't think that anybody I think it's very, I don't want to say, be, be too definitive here. I think it's very, very hard to understand. I think, well, let me put it a different way. I think being a parent is the best way to understand unconditional love. And unconditional love is a powerful concept. So I think that's the best thing about being a parent.
2: Well, uh, that's that's the the wonder about this podcast. It's turned out to be that closing question and the dynamic of, of answers I get. And so I think... That is a tremendous way for us to wrap up our conversation. Dan, I know that you get plethora of and bombarded with requests like this to do podcasts. So I am greatly appreciative and humbled that you uh, chose to to spend this time with us. I really appreciate it.
1: Paul, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit tamacapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.